Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to conclude our series in Habakkuk today. We'll begin reading in verse 16. It says, When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. So again, remember, Habakkuk is upset about the debauchery and the sinfulness of his people. He wants God to to judge them so he can correct them and bring revival to the land. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, same people group. They're going to come in and they're going to carry you captive and that's how we're going to solve this problem. He didn't like that. He thought, oh man, that's not what I was asking for. And that troubled him. But he asked God to revive them in the midst of that time. And that's what he's referring to. He said, man, I was troubled. I was, I was physically responding to the, to the message that God had given, but I wanted to have rest in that day of trouble when he comes. Verse 17, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat, the flocks shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I've circled that word, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He will make my feet like hinds feet, and He will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. I want to preach to you this morning, I must confess, because this is a confession as Habakkuk concludes his prophecy, and I want to show you some things that we as believers in today's day We need to confess these things, and let's confess them together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we've prayed several times, but we do ask that you speak to our hearts, that you'd work in us, that you would uh, challenge us, build us, help us. Well, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We're all familiar with the name Benjamin Franklin, very fascinating character in, in history, very fascinating character just in general. And Benjamin Franklin by his own testimony, was not a Christian. But he did admire and appreciate the Bible. You may know that he served as a diplomat in France, and so while he was there serving as a diplomat for the uh, fledgling United States, some of the sophisticated, cultured skeptics of France were mocking his um, admiration and appreciation for the Bible. So one night he was at a gathering with people who had mocked the Bible and he decided to find out how, how well they knew the book that they had scorned. You know, it's always amazing to me how many people ridicule and scorn the Bible, don't know anything about it. You know, don't you love those people that say, well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of contradictions in there. And you're like, well, show me one. Well, I can't right now, you know, that kind of thing. So Benjamin Franklin, he wanted to, again, see how well they knew the book that they had scorned. So one evening in a get-together, which would have been uh, more uh, common in, in this era of history, he, he wanted to read them publicly a poem. And so he got up and he read this impressive poem. He, he told them, he said, I found this, this poem in an ancient text and, I, and, I, and I, I wanted to read it to you and just see if it impressed you the way that it impressed me. And so he got up and he, he read this, this poem. What he read them was the third chapter of Habakkuk. A big portion of that. And if you remember from last week, there is a very poetic section as he, as he put his prayer to song. And so he, he read this to them and, and they were amazed. They thought it was beautiful, it was wonderful. And they, 
They asked him, where, where did you find this? Where can we get t- copies of this poem you have read? And he handed them the Bible. You know, this particular chapter is beautifully worded. In fact, we see at the end of verse 19 that it says, To the chief singer on my stringed instruments, they put this, this prophecy that was really in the form of a poem into a song. And, and, and I think that what, again, we pointed this out when we came to this chapter, one of the reasons that's done is you remember things better when you put it in a song. One way to instill truth into your own heart is to sing great songs. And, and by the way, that's why I think you ought to be very careful about the music that you listen to. I know I'm about to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but I am a preacher and I'm trying to lead people into areas of righteousness. But it's amazing to me how Christians will listen to and even sing things that they do not believe and that are completely opposed to what they stand for and what they actually believe. But they will do it because it's put to music that they enjoy. Be very careful about that. You see, this particular song, again, it was instilling truth into the heart and the conscience of of an individual that would sing it, but also the same is true for a nation. And so, again, I I, want to just be an advocate for hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. They're they're very important, but the same is true for a nation. I was trying to think that there are some songs that are, are national songs for us that uh, signify something. I, I think about in the time, you know, we're not supposed to forget what happened on 9-11. And, and do you remember the, what happened when, when things were kind of uh, coming back and we were getting back to ball games, which is an important part of our society and stuff? And do you remember at, at New York Yankees baseball games in the heart of, of really what we call paganism in America, New York City, they're singing, God bless America, because that song has instilled in the fabric of our culture a truth that we need to remember and be reminded of. That's what Habakkuk does here. When we pick up in verse 16, it's interesting to me that the the prophet is kind of giving an indication of what had happened in his life. We are introduced to him in chapter 1 where he's a very talkative man. I mean, he's got some questions for God, some things he wants to say to God, some things he wants to deal with God about. And this normally talkative prophet is now speechless. See, Habakkuk had earlier asked questions. Well, let me tell you something. There are some people, you don't ask them questions if you don't want their answers. Come on, anybody in here ever gotten gotten in trouble for that? Somebody said, hey, I got a question for you. What do you think about this? And they ask you, and you tell them what you think, and then they get mad at you for your answer. Listen, hey, if you don't want to know, don't ask. Well, God gave Habakkuk some answers. Hey, I want to know why you don't do this, and what you're going to do about that. Well, God showed up, and he gave him answers. And there were answers that shocked him. Uh, God had, uh, really Habakkuk had asked for evidence of God's power and God's authority. And, and you know, hey, what are you going to do? I, man, it's, it's, why are we letting this thing get out of control? Can't you do something about it? And God shows up and shows him exactly what he's going to do. And it leaves him shaking. He wanted the evidence of God's power. Boy, he got it. That's what happened here. And by the way, I think some physical reactions are to be expected when you get in the presence of God. God will affect you, not just spiritually. That's why anytime you see people exposed to Him in Scriptures, what do they do? They immediately fall on their face. I mean, this, this shaking and this, I, I'm not talking about some charismatic way, I'm just simply saying, He responded physically to the greatness of God. Warren Wearsby, great 
Bible student, uh, benefited greatly from his writings. He called this passage one of the greatest confessions of faith found anywhere in Scripture. You understand what a confession of faith is? We, we don't use them much in our church. It's really a formal statement that's put together that expresses your doctrinal belief. It's, it's uh, ordinarily intended for maybe a public acknowledgement by an individual or a group. You, you'll see confessions of faith might be a little bit more popular in churches that are associated with the Protestant Reformation and those kind of things. And, and, and I'm not saying that they're necessarily bad. I think some people give them a little bit more credence than than they should, but a confession of faith is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's an official statement of what you believe. And that's what Habakkuk is doing here. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. So we ought to know what we believe and why we believe it, and we ought to hold fast to it. And so when this is all said and done, Habakkuk says, here's what I believe about this. I want you to see this morning, Three confessions of faith that every believer should hold fast. Three confessions of faith that every believer should hold fast. Listen, I don't care what happens in this world. I, I don't care how crazy things get. I don't care how, how unchristian and secularized our, our country becomes. Listen, this crowd right here ought to hold fast to these things. All right, let's, let me point them out to you. Number one, I will rest in the Lord. I will rest in the Lord. Look at verse 16. When I heard my belly tremble, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. Some of you have probably heard this quote before. Corey Ten Boom is known for saying this, Look within and you will be depressed. Look around you and you will be distressed. Look above and you will be at rest. That's exactly what the prophet is saying here. He says, listen, I understand that what you said is going to happen I understand that we're going to be led into captivity. I understand that pagan people are going to come into our world and turn us on our head. I understand that all of that is going to happen. But I, I'm asking you, Lord, and I, I'm going to confess with this, that when that happens, I'm going to rest in you. You see, when he looked within, he was exactly like what that quote says. He was trembling and fearful. He literally was shaking. He knew that his nation was headed for destruction. And so what he asked for is what he got in chapter 2. He needed to see God. And so what was, what was exposed to him is he saw God's greatness. And when you see God's greatness, you know what you see about yourself? Your smallness. When he saw God, he saw God's power. And when you're, when you're face to face with God's power, you know what you see in you? Your own weakness. He saw God's glory, and when you see God's glory, you'll be faced with your own shame. And, and he saw God's majesty, and, and when you're faced with God's majesty, you end up seeing your own vulgarity. And he saw all of these things. And we see this in our, in our short journey with Habakkuk. He has taught us to do something that's very important in life. He's taught us to take our questions to God and to wait for his word to teach us. See, one of the marks of a mature faith is a willingness to wait patiently for the Lord to work. And that's what God taught Habakkuk in this, in this, in this uh, uh, prophecy. He said, listen, I know you have questions. I'm giving you answers, and I'm going to work on that. But you must rest in me. You must trust me. You must wait for me. And that's something that he didn't really want to do. You see, again, one of the marks of a mature faith is our willingness to wait patiently for the Lord to work. I love that in Isaiah 28, 16. He that believeth shall not make haste. That's something that I've quoted myself over and over again. Being a person of impatient nature, it's easy for me want to want God to do something and do it now. 
And he that believes should not make haste. In fact, Phillips Brooks, Phillips Brooks was a, a man who wrote a wonderful book for preachers, uh, uh, Phillips Brooks Lectures on Preaching. He gave it Yale Divinity School way back when. It's a, it's a masterpiece. It's a really great book. And someone stopped in to visit Phillips Brooks once, and he was, he was pacing the floor when they walked in, the, the, uh, a friend to greet him. And, and, and he's pacing around, and he's pacing around, and, and his friend said, what is the trouble, Dr. Brooks? And he said, well, the trouble is that I'm in a hurry, but God is not. You ever felt that way? And you, you want something done, you want it done now, you see a problem and it needs to be fixed now, and, and you want God to work and you want Him to do it now, and, and, and He's not, not, not doing what you want Him to do. And Habakkuk was like that in chapter 1. Lord, how long? But you get here, you get here in chapter 3 and something's changed in him. He says, listen, in all the time of trouble, I'm just going to rest. I'm going to rest in the Lord. See, I think we all know this, we just don't always practice it. We know that we, when we run ahead of God, we get in trouble. I could give you some biblical examples. Ask Abraham about the time when he took Hagar as his wife and fathered a son named Ishmael. How'd that turn out for everybody? I told our Sunday school class, we're still dealing with that mess today. Go on, run ahead of God. But isn't that exactly what he did? God said he's going to give me a son. I've been waiting for a son. I mean, don't you think I've waited long enough? I mean, don't you think, man, I'm already an old man. I'm 100 years old. I mean, I've waited 25 years for this. I mean, come, come on, come on, let's go. When we run ahead of God, we, we usually cause some trouble. Just ask Moses, another great character in the Old Testament. How'd that work out for him when he, he knew that God had something for him? He knew that he was supposed to be something special in the nation of Israel. He knew that God was going to use him in great leadership. And so what does he do? Seeing the oppression of his people, he takes matters into his own hands and he kills that Egyptian and buries him in the sand. How'd that turn out for everybody? So when we run ahead of God, we create trouble for ourselves and for everybody around us. So that's why, again, in chapter 1 and verse 2, he's asking the Lord, Oh Lord, how long? But God had transformed him from an impatient prophet into an eager servant, just waiting and resting. See, Habakkuk is now confident that God's testimony, God gave his testimony, and he is confident that God's testimony is tr trustworthy, that God is going to do what God said he would do. And you know what he comes to the conclusion? That he's fine with that. He may not do it exactly when, Habakkuk wanted, but he's fine to let God work and do things on his timetable. Psalm 37, 7 says this, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. You understand this morning that to rest or to wait, biblically speaking, is, 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 does not mean to assume the worst. And isn't that how our minds go? I'll tell you, I do that. As a pastor, you just never know. I mean, every once in a while, I'll get an email or a voicemail or a phone call. And someone says, hey, pastor, I want to meet with you. Immediately, my mind goes to the worst case scenarios. So why do you do that? I, years of experience, I guess. I don't know. My mind goes to immediately the worst case scenarios. And I think, okay, what did I do? What did I do? What did I do to them? What did I not do for them? What, are, what could they possibly be upset about? Who are their children? What did I do? You know, like, I just... <laughs> It's just, never, you never know. And, and then you, you meet with them and, and it's nothing. 
See, our minds immediately want to race to the worst case scenarios. Assume the worst. Maybe, maybe that's a survival technique in all of us to, to worry and fret and assume the worst. Listen, when you rest in God, that, you're not assuming the worst. You're, you're not making demands. You're, you're not taking control. I mean, how many of you despise backseat drivers? It's annoying sometimes, isn't it? You want to drive? You know? I think sometimes we do that to God. Well, God, drive this thing. And then we sit there going, you're going too fast. You're braking too hard. <laughs> Anybody else have a spouse that does that to you? My wife has given me heart attacks. Oh, what, what? You know, like. Do we do that? Here, let me have that. You don't know what you're doing. It's none of those things. And let me also say this. It's also not waiting in inactivity. You don't just sit around and go, well, you know, just, you know, waiting on the Lord, and you're doing nothing. You know, I mean, some people do that sometimes. Well, they need a job. Pastor, I need a job. Well, have you applied anywhere? Nope, just waiting on the Lord. <laughs> hey, man, there's this thing called a telephone, and there's this thing called an internet. Go and apply, right? You know, you, you got you to do something while you're waiting for God to work. When Jesus said, occupy till I come, we know that doesn't mean take up some space until I show up. It, it means you keep busy until he comes doing what he's told you to do. See, basically this, and I think we need to get this truth in our life, waiting is a sustained effort to stay focused on God. It is an intentional effort to keep our focus on him. And that's something that's been a theme in this book. It's why I, I, I felt God leading us to study this book. But it's something we need to be reminded of in this day and age, in 2023. It's easy to get our focus on, on this movement and on that movement and on the political structure and on the social problems of our country. And it's easy to get our focus on all of these things and not keep it on Him. And again, I'm telling you, waiting on Him, resting in Him, is an intentionality that we say, you know, no, no, I have a tendency to want to focus on that. I want to focus on how bad it is. I want to focus on how wrong everything is. I want to focus on how things are falling apart. And we get our eyes on these things instead of uh, intentionally keeping them on the, on the main thing, which is Him and His glory and His purposes. So Habakkuk had to come full circle. And he makes this great confession. He, he, he says... I will rest in the Lord. Oh, it's going to get bad. I know that. God said it would. But in the midst of the trouble, what I'm going to do is I'm going to rest in the Lord. May that be our confession today. Hey, things are not the way we want. They're troublesome. But I will rest in the Lord. Number two, I want you to see this. I will rejoice in the Lord. In verses 17 and 18, he talks about that. He he paints a bleak picture in verse 17, but he gets to verse 18, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. In verse 17, what he does is he faces the facts, and, and the facts are very unpleasant. Basically, he goes on to describe the ravages of war and the loss of all the resources. I mean, did you see what he says? He says the fig tree doesn't blossom. Uh, that, that was a big uh, a part of their, their diet and provision. And 
He says we don't have the, uh, uh, the olive tree with the vines and we don't, it's going to fail and the fields don't yield any crops and the flocks are cut off so we don't have any clothes and there's no herds in the stalls so we don't have any food. So basically he's, just, he's kind of creating a picture of this captivity where it's kind of like Bosnia, Rwanda, Vietnam, Ukraine all wrapped up into one and he says we don't have anything to eat, we don't have anything to buy, we don't have anything to wear, we've got, we've got a real problem here. But in verse 18 he declares his decision. He basically says this, I cannot rejoice in my circumstances. I mean, you you read verse 17, I know this isn't the king's English, but this stinks. I mean, every convenience, every goodness, everything that I've enjoyed in life, it's gone. And I cannot rejoice in my circumstances, but here's what he says. But I can rejoice in my God. I can do that. In fact, he says, I will do that. You see, it's one thing to rejoice in our blessings. And I think we should count your many blessings. Name them one by one. It'll surprise you what the Lord has done. And everybody in this room, we could go around the room and we could all think of reasons to thank God for the blessings we have in our life. We could thank God for our families and our provision and our homes. And we can thank God for all of these things. And and we should. And we ought to, by the way, we ought to be a grateful People, man, we ought not be the kind of grumbly, bumbly people where everything's, you know, just, well, I know it's okay, but this stinks. I don't want that attitude. May God deliver us from that kind of attitude. But I'm going to tell you, while it's one thing to rejoice in the blessings in life, it's quite another when we have nothing. By his own testimony, he basically said, I don't really have anything. I mean, when this hits, we're not going to have anything. But he says this, I will joy in the God of my salvation. Man, I like that. You know, if I could testify a little bit this morning, and man, some of the songs have been spot on with that today, Brother Mark, just kind of fit hand in hand with the message I thought, especially Jesus, what a friend of sinners. He is my Savior. And can we testify that this morning? Listen, we're people of faith. We know what it was like to, as Brother Doug sang about this morning, we know what it was like to be saved from our very own sin and our very own foolishness. I recognize the world doesn't quite understand everything what I'm about talking about, but but I'm in God's house today talking to God's people. He's my Savior. He's my God. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that there was a day I was lost and undone and I experienced what we call Holy Spirit conviction. Boy, it pierced my heart. I recognized, boy, I'm a sinner on my way to hell. Man, I need something in my life. I cannot save myself. And if something supernatural doesn't happen with me, boy, I'm I'm in big trouble. And I'm glad that the Savior reached down for me and He became my Savior. I'm thankful for that. He saved me out of my sin. It wasn't His sin. It was my sin. It was my foolishness. My transgression, and he saved me from it. Now, I want you to know when it says there that I'll rejoice in the God of my salvation. Man, think about that. He's my Savior. And understand, that, that's, a, that's a personal connection. Do you have a personal testimony? Do you remember the day you got saved? Do you remember the difference it made in your life? Do you understand something about it to yourself? See, I think sometimes we listen to people sing and we listen to people preach and they're testifying and they're talking about this and that. And, and, and man, they get all excited about it, but, but you're thinking, well, what about me? Hey, what, what about you? Is it real to you? He said this, I can't rejoice in my circumstances, but I can tell you this, he is my Savior. And I love the fact that he points out, he's not just talking to a crowd and saying, listen, salvation is available to you all. 
No, he's saying, yes, it's available to you all, but it is special to me. And that's one thing that burdens me a little bit. Is you see it in generational Christians, don't you? Man, this story has been told over and over and over again, hasn't it? Where, where somebody who may be the first generation of Christians in a family, they, they didn't know the Lord, they weren't saved, maybe they were out in the world and they, they, they were maybe, and so maybe some dead religion or something like that and they just didn't know Christ and, and somebody, whether through its circumstances or a personal soul winner or, or they just drifted into church knowing they needed something and they heard the gospel and it changed them. That first generation, boy, they're so excited. They're developing convictions and they're learning about the Bible and it's real to them in their family and there's a radical change and then the second generation kind of grows up around it and they just kind of yeah it's kind of what they know and then the uh, but but they don't they don't have it as as unique as the first they they didn't experience this radical shift and change it's just kind of all they ever knew and they accepted it and they believe it but that third generation it just gets cooler and cooler and as it goes on and on and on it just drifts away listen may we never get to that place because what this man is saying is he's saying he's the god i will rejoice in the lord he is the god of my salvation he makes it real to himself He's basically saying this, if I have nothing in terms of this world, but I have him, then I have reason to rejoice. I read a story, I don't know if it's fiction or fact, I just read this story and I liked it. It's about a family, many years ago, lost three of their children to diphtheria in the same exact week. Again, I've had to minister to people who lost a child. It's, it's a difficulty that I don't think anybody ever really, truly gets over. You, you get through, but you'll never get over. Can you imagine losing three in one week? They did have another three-year-old daughter that survived. The following Sunday was Easter Sunday. Their children had just died. It was Easter Sunday. The father of this family that lost three children, mom and, dad, mom and dad and little daughter, three years old, they went to church that day. He was the Sunday school superintendent, the Sunday school director and teacher. And so he got up and he, he taught. Being Easter Sunday, he taught about the resurrection. He read the passage of Scripture and just the whole church was hurting with him and as he read the text, just reading the text about the resurrection, people were weeping. You could hear them crying and sniffing and weeping with this man. But he stood with great composure. He didn't weep. He didn't cry. He just he, he read and he taught about the glories and the power of the resurrection. When the service was over, there was another family in the church and they were leaving and as they were going out, they had a 15-year-old son. And the 15-year-old son said, you know, the Sunday school director and his wife, they must really believe the Easter story. They must really believe that. And the father looked at his teenage son, and he said, well, son, all Christians believe that. You can't be a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection. I mean, all Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And the 15-year-old son looked at his dad, and he said, Yeah, all Christians may believe that, but not the way that man does. I wonder about you. 
It's one thing to say God is good. It's one thing to say I'll rejoice in the Lord. But do you believe it in a way that other people might not? It's because I'll say this, and I'll move on. How we react under trials, it reveals the depth of our conviction. We all know it's true because we need to be, but we still need to be reminded of it from time to time. It's one thing to praise God when the sun is shining. It's another thing to praise God in the darkness of night. It's one thing to praise God when the coffers are abounding. It's another thing to praise God when there's nothing. And this man said, hey, I'm going to praise God no matter what happens. Number three, I want you to see this. I will rely on the Lord. He says in verse 19, the Lord God is my strength. Habakkuk is ready to let anyone know that the reason that he has hope in the midst of a bad situation is because God is his strength. It's not due to any innate or inward strength of his own. You know, I think sometimes we do that with people. We look at them and say, man, I should, they're just a strong person, man. I tell you, their constitution, boy, they're They're strong. And I I understand that some personalities might be a little stronger than others. I get that. But Habakkuk is freely admitting, no, 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 it's not because I have a stronger constitution or personality than other people. The Lord is my strength. You know, what he's saying is it's not like he's mastered the technique. You know, it's not like he achieved a black belt in faith. Yeah, you, you ever gone to somebody who's got a black belt, man, they're breaking boards with their head or whatever they're doing? No thanks I, I, for me, but man, if you can do that, I want to be your friend, you know. I'll start the trouble and you can clean it up. Bam! You know, that kind of thing. But there's a technique to that kind of stuff. And I've mastered the technique. It's not, it's not like he graduated, and so that's why I'm so strong. I've just mastered the technique. He, he had not consulted a guru and, and had a life coach. He he, he didn't follow some formula and some recipe that's been handed down to him. He just simply makes this statement. God is my strength. No more, no less. God is my strength. And I love what he does in verse 19. He says, the Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. This it could be perceived of being a quotation of a psalm that David had wrote as well. Either way, it's the same imagery that both of them, both David and, and Habakkuk used. And basically what he's using is the imagery of a deer with powerful hind legs moving nimbly on a dangerous ter- terrain. I mean, think about this. I want you to imagine those, those strong, spring-loaded legs of a deer just, just bounding up a rocky hill, just moving straight up some kind of difficult incline. Imagine in your mind this imagery. He said, God is my strength. God has allowed me in difficult terrain and uphill battles to just spring and bound up them. It's great imagery. He's basically saying, you look at those animals, and God has created them with strength, not to just stand firm. Think about that. You ever seen a deer on the side of the road or in a field? There's something majestic about it. I, I'm not a hunter. I know some of you guys love to kill innocent animals. And that's fine. Uh, I'm not against it. I'll, I'll eat them. You kill them, I'll eat them, right? You know. 
And every once in a while, I, I still get excited to look out in the field, especially if it's a buck. I, I can understand why you hide in the woods and get excited when one comes by. And I want you in your mind's eye right now, I want you to, I want you to imagine you're driving down the road somewhere in South Carolina, more in a rural setting, and you look out and there's a field, maybe the corn's been already mowed down in the, in the wintertime and the, the, the stalks are just kind of hanging up and there's a, there's a buck deer just standing right in the middle of the field and he's got his chest puffed out and he's majestically just standing. You can see what I'm trying to paint with words in your mind. And then there's something strong and majestic about that. But this, this is not the picture that he's painting. He's not saying, wow, look how strong and big and firm that deer is as he stands in that field. No, no, what he's saying is this. God didn't just give me strength to stand firm. I'm not just dealing with the adversity. I'm not just taking the adversity. What he's saying there is, God has given me strength to rise above it and make progress over it in spite of it. And that's what I want in my life. And it's one thing to say, man, I'll just grin and bear it and I'll just take it. No, no, I, I want hinds feet that let me bound up the hill, that let me move up the terrain in spite of what is opposing me. That's what Habakkuk says. He says, I, I don't want to just coast. I want to climb. I thought about that. Imagine I... Uh, some of the guys in the church, some of the younger guys, they, 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 went, they went skiing earlier this week and snowboarding. And I was thinking about that. Uh, a, a lot of those skiers, they'll, they'll take a lift up the mountain. And then they go down it. You know, sometimes some of you, if you haven't been in a while, you, you, you don't just coast down it. You might roll and barrel down it, fall down it. But you kind of lift it up it. Listen, what would you imagine if God gave you the strength to just bound up the mountain? And that's what I want in my life. See, Habakkuk's looking at the climb ahead. And through God being his strength, he sees the potential. He doesn't just see the problems. He says, like Paul once said, for when I'm weak, then he is strong. It's a great testimony. See, God, by His own indwelling Spirit, provides us with the strength to do what otherwise would be impossible. G. Campbell Morgan, great author, preacher, he said this, Our joy is in proportion to our trust. And our trust is in proportion to our knowledge of God. And I think that's a great summation of this entire prophecy. Boy, he, he, he's panicking in, verse, or in chapter 1 and he doesn't know what to do and he's got a lot of questions and he, and he needs God to provide a lot, of, a lot of power and strength. And in chapter 2, God says, sit down and be quiet. Let me show you who I am. And then in chapter 3, he's like, yeah. No matter what happens, this is going to be good. You can, you can visibly see the change in three chapters. And again, I tell you what what Morgan said, our joy is in proportion to our trust. Our trust is in proportion to our knowledge of God. Can I make this statement and I'll close today? God doesn't always change our circumstances. I know we wish He would. But God doesn't always change our circumstances. But He can change us to meet our circumstances. And I want to I conclude our whole study 
of this book and our, and our sermon today with this, if you've got your Bible open still, look over to the key verse of, of the book and really the key thought of, maybe you can make the argument of the whole Bible. In chapter 2, in verse 4, would you look at it and read it with me? It says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Could we just read that out loud together, uh, audibly as a church? Will we do that? I'll begin you. Let's say it together. But the just shall live by his faith. See, Habakkuk has learned this lesson in this prophecy. And that's why he says, you know what? I'm going to rely on the Lord. Because the just man has to learn to live by his faith. So no matter what happens, I'm going to rely on the Lord. God may not change my circumstances, but I'm going to rely on the Lord. Because God has changed me to face my circumstances. So let me just challenge our church and our culture, no matter how bad it gets, no matter what happens, let's make sure we say, you know what, I'm just going to wait in the Lord. I'm going to rest in the Lord. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm not going to be one of these Christians, my lip dragging on the ground four feet behind me everywhere I go. I'm going to rejoice. God's good. God's good. And I'm just going to trust Him. Because I don't care what happens in this world. I will not be deterred in my faith. God has given me strength. Not to just, not to just take it, but to bound over it. Let me ask you some questions. Here are my questions for you. What does your life confess? What are you confessing every day? What are you saying every day? With your lips, with your life, what is your confession? Let me apply it to the sermon. Are you making a sustained effort to focus on God? Hey, sometimes it has to be really intentional. Sometimes you have to say, wait a second, wait a second, I'm looking at the wrong thing here. But you have to make a sustained effort to focus on God. Number two, do you rejoice in the Lord no matter what the circumstances are? Hey, let's admit it. Let's admit it. Some of us in this room are control freaks. We want it our way. We, we want it the way we like it. And when it's not, we get grouchy. We get depressed. We get irritable and upset. But listen, no matter how it is, there's always something to rejoice the Lord about. You might not be able to rejoice about your circumstances, but you can always rejoice in your God. Number three, are you living by faith and finding strength in Him? I pray the Lord will help us today. What's the confession of your life?